Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Jessica Gonzalez. Jessica is an associate in Foley's Houston office focused on finance. In this conversation, Jessica reflects on growing up in Houston and details how it is that she ended up going to Harvard University for college. She also explains how she is not someone who always knew she wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, she attended law school reluctantly. After college, deciding to spend some time traveling abroad, waiting to see what else turned up, but eventually deciding she would go to law school because she was going to become the next Johnny Cochran. Jessica also reflects on joining her first law firm out of college, which was not Foley and Lardner. She talks about how she spent the first five years of her career at another firm, learning how to be a finance attorney, but she also shares about a really, really difficult dynamic she dealt with while at that firm, specifically inappropriate harassment from someone she worked closely with. I won't go into detail here as I think it's important for you to hear it in Jessica's own words, but I will say that we spoke about her sharing this prior to recording the show and that Jessica really felt that it was important for her to be honest and to share this really difficult time of her life as it's a part of her journey and she knows that so many of others have encountered the same situation. In addition to discussing how she navigated this really hard dynamic, Jessica also highlights her healing. She shares how after she left that firm, she wasn't sure if she wanted to be a lawyer anymore. And she actually took about 18 months away, traveling abroad, to figure out her priorities and what she wanted to do. But she ultimately decided she wanted to return to practice, and she was able to join Foley as a lateral associate a little over a year ago. But a little over a year ago is also right around when the COVID-19 pandemic started. So Jessica got a few months of the pre-COVID world and soon found herself trying to learn a new firm during a global pandemic. And as you'll soon hear, Jessica has an amazing type of energy and is really, really personable. So I think it's no surprise you'll soon hear how she's really thrived in that environment and been able to meet so many people despite navigating these very strange times. Something that's also fantastic is that Jessica has recently become the co-chair of Foley's Hispanic Attorneys Affinity Group, which we also talk about. Jess ends our conversation by giving some wonderful advice about the importance of taking care of yourself. And I hope you enjoy our discussion. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Let's jump right in and just have you give your introduction. Great. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Jessica Gonzalez, and I am a sixth-year finance associate in the Houston office. My practice focuses on representing borrowers and lenders in a variety of financing transactions with an emphasis on real estate and oil and gas transactions. And this year, I've also worked on a significant amount of bankruptcy and restructuring matters. I'm so happy to have you here because I consider you to be my Foley anniversary buddy, right? Because we started at the firm, I think within about a week of each other. Yeah, I started on December 19th, 2019. When did you start? Yes. Okay. I take it back. We're like two weeks of each other. I think I was December 2nd, but it was fun because I think I I probably talked to you within those 
the first few months of you being at the firm and we realized we started at the same time. So we both started and then there's a pandemic three months later. So we've had similar experience and, and also we'll get here. So as a, so you're a lateral to the firm and you've been doing a great job at navigating the lateral Thank experience you. in a pandemic, which we'll talk about when we get there. But anyway, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I am born and raised in Houston, Texas, a product of public schools in Houston. Um, I went to Lamar High School, which is located just right in the middle of Houston, and was one of those kind of overachiever types where I was student council president, senior class president, part of the homecoming court, you know, kind of did kind of did all of that. You answer my next question. I love it because this is where I'm like, so what kind of kid were you? And that's like a high, that's high school. So Tell me even more. What else were you into? What what was that time like for you? And if it's like middle school, high school, but you know, before college, what was that like? Oh, well, as a kid, you know, I really loved to read. And I would say that I was also very motivated by money and incentives. You know, so that you know what I think about certain like, things like in so the starting summer. with the gold star. And like that starts with gold stars at the age of five or something like that. And then it gets bigger as you get older. You know, that would be, you know, five dollars for reading every book. I'm like, well I'm gonna be reading five books at a time. You know, I was very <laughs> And I know that for some kids, you know, putting a monetary incentive kind of takes away the intrinsic value that you would derive from that. But for me, I mean, I was like, no, this is this makes it even better. Definitely a very excitable child. You know, I mean, usually I was kind of jumping around, had a lot of energy, high energy, high, yeah. energy, high energy, happy, smiling. So that's kind of the way that I that I was and would kind of go full speed ahead, you know, throughout high school on just wanting to be really good at whatever I was participating in. I love that. I can see it because you maintain, you're a high energy person now. You're a high vibe person, which we really benefit at the firm. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later if we talk about you becoming co-chair of our Hispanic affinity group. But that is fantastic. You can see the through line. So you say that, I'm like, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. All right. So say it's high school, you're going off to college. What is that story for you? What, what happened there? So I didn't know where I wanted to go to school at all. It, all I knew that it was that I wanted to go somewhere outside of Texas. And so I researched, I mean, every school that there was. And one of the college trips that we did was to Boston because Boston has so many, you know, it's a college city. It has so many different colleges. And when we went to visit Harvard, I mean, I was you know, I almost think of it like a Harry Potter experience. It was just magical. It is like Harry Potter. It's amazing. And I, I knew this is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. And so I applied early, early action. And so Harvard was my number one choice. And my number two choices were like 50 schools. From there, I was like, I have no idea. You know, I'd have to go through a very long application process. But I thought, let me just do the one application and see what happens. And so that was one application that I had to complete. And I found out that I got into Harvard before the deadlines for any other schools and accepted right away. That's amazing. I didn't know that. God, there's so many things people tell me on this show that I'm like, I feel like I should have known that, but I didn't. But anyway, so you go to Harvard and then what? Did you know what you wanted to do with that, with the, your undergraduate degree? I knew that I wanted to study psychology. I mean, to me, it's a liberal arts college. And so I wanted to just take courses in something that I was going to be very interested in, if that's what you're going to spend the majority of your time. But I wanted to learn about as many things as possible. The law was always a little bit in the background. And so when I look at that transcript, you know, there was race, justice, and the law, psychology, and the law. You know, so I would take a couple um 
you know, a couple of classes in there. And it was something that I that was always in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really quite sure that that was something that I wanted to do. And so there wasn't really a plan of, you know, what am I going to study while I'm here so that it can project some career? It was just, how can I get the most out of this experience for now? And then you know, figure out what to do next. That's fantastic. And I actually, I feel a little bad when I ask people to reflect on what they were thinking when they were 18, 19, 20, because for so many, you grow and change so much. But I do think it's interesting because I do, I also think a lot of us feel like, and in the, in the United States, you're supposed to know what you want to be for the rest of your life at 17, 18 years old. And I think this podcast and so many other things prove that that's not the case, <laughs> um, that we may ha- come out with one plan, with one path in our mind and do something very different. And one thing I forgot to actually ask you, so you you mentioned, you know, proudly from Houston. What was that like then moving out of Texas to go to Cambridge? Was that Was that seamless for you? Was there any adjustment there? So I think for those first couple of weeks, especially coming from a public school, um, yeah, I was I was definitely concerned that here I am at this elite institution, and you know this is I can't believe that I'm here. I don't deserve to be here. And I and I remember distinctly it was about two weeks in, and I was kind of looking around. I was like, oh no, I'm where I need to be. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is fine. I can handle this. And and I do think that my high school education did, I got the international baccalaureate degree, which is a really good degree for high school, and that that kind of prepared me for that experience. And then as far as being out of Texas, I mean, you take the Texas with you, right? So, I mean, I would say I got my roommates saying, y'all, they were all from the Northeast. <laughs> but yeah, so... That's fantastic. So what what was your actual degree in undergrad? In psychology. Okay. Psychology minored in Spanish and then uh, was one course away from minoring in Chinese. Really? <laughs> That's a number of Chinese classes then. I did not expect you to say that. Okay. So tell me more. What, then what happens? College and then what? So after college, my roommate and I knew that we didn't want to do, most people kind of go into in consulting or investment banking, and we knew that that was not really something that we were interested in doing. And so she found a program where we could teach English in Bangkok. And so we moved to Thailand and I taught English in Bangkok for nine months. And I loved Southeast Asia so much that I ended up staying an additional nine months just traveling the area. That's amazing. I also see some seeds that are planted with you in travel, which we will get to. We will get there. But the, I see the start of it. So 18 months in Thailand. And you know, I think that always in the back of my back of my mind, you know, law school was always there. But I also thought that I was going to, there was going to be some job or some opportunity that was going to be the best opportunity of all time. And that was what I was going to be meant to do. So law school was my plan B. And after traveling and trying out a lot of different things, it looked like, okay, I'm returning home to do the plan B. So I had gone through all of my savings. I had $20 to my name and it was in, you know, Vietnamese, Cambodian and Lao currency. I came back <laughs> completely spent and I was like, all right, I'm back in the US and it is time for <laughs> time for a little bit more structure and for a plan. That's amazing. Were you doing the law school application process while abroad or did, did you come back? And then, okay. I, I kind of forgot. I, I took the LSAT in Bangkok. 
that you can do that <laughs> I said, or at least you could because you know, it was a little while ago at this point you can do that tell me more yeah well they you know there's not as many testing times or anything but it was part of my argument you know when I was telling my parents okay you know you just paid for this Harvard education and now I'm going to use that and go teach English in Thailand and spend time traveling but I said but look I'm also going to be studying for the LSAT and I'll be taking the LSAT while I'm in Bangkok and here's the time so that was the kind of kid that I was too as well you know like here's the plan here's what I want to do and here's how I have a plan but also I mean it makes sense you know there's a lot of students internationally that go to U.S. law school so of course they would have testing centers and other you know in other countries but you're the first person I know who has taken the LSAT. (laughs) I forgot about that yeah and there was maybe only 10 people in that classroom and like I said I I think that it's offered I, I don't know how much you know how often anymore but it wasn't offered very often. So I had to you know, make that timing work. Yes. Well, so where did you go to law school? So I know I went to the University of Houston Law Center. I still was not convinced on law school. And so part of me wanted to stay in Houston just in case after one semester I wanted to run out. <laughs> so I thought, let me give it a shot by going just, yeah, I'm going to just stay local and see and see how I like it. That's, that's really funny. You decided to test the waters of law school. It sounds like you committed. I'd been thinking about it for a while, right? (laughs) And I'd met with a lot of people and and with different mentors that were in the legal profession and everything was saying, you know, green light, you should do this. Should do it. But it's stuck. It sounds like you finished, you know, given that you're here right now. But what going into law school did you think your interests were? What did you want to do with that degree? Oh, completely the opposite of what I'm doing. (laughs) Does that surprise you at all? Completely the opposite. That's what a lot of people say. And it's fantastic. But elaborate. Tell me more. I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney that enacted social change and social justice reform. And so I was very inspired by Johnny Cochran. O.J. Simpson's, you know, the judge, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. So before he, you know, was known for representing O.J. and Puff Daddy and other celebrities, he really did a lot for enacting social change in Los Angeles and in New York. And so I'd read his, I had a chance to meet him for my race justice in the law class at Harvard, and I had an autograph book from him. And so reading his story and seeing how he was able to represent minorities and other people that didn't really have a voice in the community in different police brutality cases and enacting that social change was what inspired me to go to law school. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But yes, you don't exactly do that right now. And we will we'll connect the dots as to, you know, why or why not. But so then what? Tell me more about, about law school. Actually, let me break it up a little bit. How was it adjusting to law school? Did you enjoy it? No, I did not enjoy it. I did not enjoy it. You know, I said that I spent more time in the library those first two weeks in law school than I did all four years at Harvard. It was yeah, the amount of reading this new language. I mean, I was I am an avid reader and I was used to reading, but it was just like a completely different, different language to me. And so you're reading a case and it's within the first, you know, two sentences, you're like, I have all of these different words to look up. <laughs> what is going on here? Highlighters. I had a lot of highlighters involved. And I think I read a book that said that's what you should do to brief a case. And I haven't thought much about this recently, but a small paragraph of text, something very short. So to listeners, I'm indicating a small paragraph to Jessica right now, but would be so incredibly dense for some reason. 
mm-hmm. that it would take a really long time to read something that in terms of character count or word count that I would normally read in like 30 seconds, like suddenly. Well, and you'd had no idea what to focus on, you know, what what's actually important here and what's not important here. And so it, it just took a long, long time. And, you know, I think that it depends to, you know, if you have lawyers, I didn't have any lawyers in the family. And I do think that there is something when you have some exposure, then you know a little bit about what you're getting into. But for me, it just felt like a completely new language. Well, this also reminds me, and for some reason, I find this slightly embarrassing. And I have not shared, I've shared a fair amount on the shows, the hosts and things that are probably actually embarrassing. But with this is reminding me in law school. So Larry Perlman, who is a partner at Foley was mm-hmm. my court partner at, at the University of Michigan for law school. We made it very far. I want to say it was like quarterfinals. It was something where we were the last four four teams out of the entire school. But I remember somewhere in that process, because we're also we're writing these briefs, like we're doing these arguments. One of the, I think it was a professor who was, and this isn't at like the fi- the fi- like the most final rounds. We would have figured it out by then, but is reading whatever we briefed. And it's like, why would you cite such and such case? Like the holding goes the opposite <laughs> of what you're arguing. <laughs> and we were like, oh, but the facts were really similar. And there was like this an aside and the brief that like is what we're arguing. And the 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 judge was like, no, no, because at that point. And I'll take the blame. Larry's amazing. He's a partner at Foley. He would never do this. Let's blame me. But it never occurred to me that I shouldn't just point blank, do not cite stuff that does that goes the opposite. Like even if there's something you like in the language, like just don't cite it. Uh-huh. Whereas because when you're in law school, you're like, it's a case. I liked the words. I'm writing it down. I'm academic. So it's and it's embarrassing because after, you know, I don't obviously I don't practice anymore, but that's one of those things that if you did as a litigation associate. Mm-hmm. you will get reamed out. You will, It will not be okay. <laughs> but I learned in law school not to cite cases that were the opposite of what I was asking. <laughs> that just shows how little I understood what was going on. Anyway, let's get back to you, Jessica. <laughs> All right. So you, you do make the adjustment. You finish law school. I don't know if there's any more reflections on that time or if we should sit, move on to end them what happened, but take me either direction. Well, I guess I ended up, you know, doing a 180 at some point, right? You know, turning around from criminal defense. And then you know, I think there's there's 50% of the law, you know, that is transactional. And I think I didn't really realize that, right? Everything that you see on television, everything legal related is all in the courtroom, which obviously doesn't even usually happen anyways. So, you know, once I came to, went to law school and started meeting with different attorneys and networking, you know, I realized that there's this other half of the law and that maybe it doesn't need to be such an adversarial process. And so for me, even though, you know, I like arguing, I like to win, I didn't know if that was what I wanted to do every single day and if that was the kind of mentality that I wanted to have. My parents own their own business. And so kind of being business oriented was something that was important to me. And so knowing that there was this different side of the law was something that was very attractive to me as well. And then, you know, I didn't know if at the end of the day I wanted to be, you don't get to pick and choose. With criminal defense, you don't always get to pick and choose, you know, the most righteous cases. And was that something that I really wanted wanted to do? And so, you know, gradually ended up shifting to this transactional side against from the from the criminal defense. Well, and that's a huge point that you made. And I think a number of the guests have made it. What you're exposed to can be really limited in law school. It's fantastic, though, that you did get exposure and learn that there was more than just litigation. Because law school, I think today, I think it's changed a bit. 
I think there are certain things that are more practical, but I still think it likely is very litigation focused because literally reading cases means they were in litigation to have the case created. And then so what happens, you know, you graduate and then what? Now you're aware of this other side of law. What what did you do next? So I joined a, a firm here in Houston doing energy finance. And I worked there for five years. And I had, you know, kind of a complicated relationship with my mentor and supervising partner. And a really, you know, a mentor, a friend, but then also was making advances from on me from, you know, the very beginning that I started, which was really challenging, I would say my first year, because you're a first year associate, this is my first job, this is the first job for my career. And so, and I'd even worked, you know, in, in college, I'd worked at bars, I'd worked as a personal trainer, and I just, I had not been in that kind of environment where I had a supervisor doing this, and I didn't know what to do. And part of me felt like there wasn't anything, you know, I couldn't be going against, you know, a senior partner and who was going to believe me. No one's going to believe me. And then if I leave silently, who's going to hire me after I've been at a firm for six months? And so, you know, I ended up justifying and and I know that I'm a strong person. So I was like, okay, this is fine. This is something that I can handle. Although, you know, I'd remember sometimes that I would come home and, you know, my parents could tell because I would just be all red. They're like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm fine. But, you know, I'm flushed and they could tell that, you know, that I've because physically, you know, your body is still going through something. You're going through very stressful situations. And so I stayed at the firm for five years and, you know, and the, the hard part about, you know, there's great experiences about that partner. I le- that's how I learned to be a lawyer. Great experiences about that firm, but then it's also mixed with you know some of some negative things as well. And by the end of that five year period, I was you know pretty profoundly unhappy. I remember driving to the office and just visualizing islands. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. I was like, maybe I could just go to an island and be a beach bum and work. <laughs> you know, I was like, what am I doing here? And so it was a uh, it was time for me time for me to make a change. So I left the firm after after those five years. I really appreciate you sharing that because there's there's it actually brings a number of things to mind, which is one, being a new attorney is so incredibly hard. Just so incredibly hard. And you're trying to learn how to be a lawyer. For you, you're trying to learn about, you know, energy financings. What does that mean? How do I become good at this? And then you add in dynamics of a law firm and you add in power dynamics and you add in what sounds like, you know, without going into great detail, like likely quite inappropriate behavior or harassment and not knowing what to do because you're young in your career and something, you know, that I know that I don't know how I described the, you, you and I have some similar outside interests in terms of, I don't even know how to describe it, but I think we both have learned about trauma and being like stored in the body and things that, that you just mentioned that that's just a lot to deal with. So it's not, it's not a surprise that, you know, after learning the law and while, you know, looking back and processing and seeing what was positive, I got training, but here's what was really negative and very traumatic for me. Um, and so, and I do know the next part of your story, which I I tend to call your eat, pray, love <laughs> trip. Um, and I've referred to that before. I actually was aware of sort, of, yeah, sort of some of the things that happened that precipitated you deciding to do that. But it makes sense to me. And also, I deeply appreciate you raising it because I think that experience of whether it be in a law firm or any other workplace of somebody dealing with inappropriate behavior 
of any kind, you know, happens far too frequently. And I think it's important for people to hear that it's not just them and that you can be on the other side of it. So, yeah. And it was definitely, you know, and it is difficult to share as I expressed to you before this podcast, it's difficult to share, you know, and it was something that I didn't disclose you know, even during my interview process. So after I'd left the firm and was starting with Foley, you know, I had to kind of come up with, uh, I was I was burnt out, I needed to change because I didn't want, you still face that pressure of, is someone going to think that this was your fault? Is someone going to think that you're the troublemaker and you're the instigator? And you just, you just don't know. And you have that kind of pressure. So that was something that I didn't even disclose to the people that I work with until after I started, which uh, interestingly, you know, they said that, that that kind of hurt me a bit that they were, they were like, why did she end up, if she seems like she's a go-getter and she works hard, you know, then, then if she just got burnt out, then that's a little bit concerning if she's going to be coming into this new job. So I guess I just want, you know, I think that people are much more accepting and embracing of this situation now, and people know that it is a reality. But I also felt like we—it's so difficult to talk about that I kind of felt like it is a duty to disclose, you know, that this is still something that is real and that people do go through. Yep. And I think you mentioned because we did talk about it a little bit before we started recording. I think you mentioned that towards the end of your time at that other firm, you did raise it with with them. And I just say that in case listeners are, you know, I don't know, curious, whatever reason, but also what you said about how to handle such a hard topic in a job search. In some ways it perpetuates that, that harassment, the fact that you can't be totally candid because for whatever reason you're like, well, I don't, you know, I'm concerned about how this new employer will see me, but also depending on whatever occurred, it actually requires the person almost to relive that traumatic event, which you're not always wanting to do, right? Sometimes you just want to do the interview, whether, you know, and tell them about your job skills, but it's, it's so hard. And actually I, so for whatever reason, um, I'll be very clear about this. I seem to moonlight as a bit of a life coach consultant to lots of people. And I say moonlight and it's, it's free. I don't, this is not a real business. You don't have to call me, but you know, given what I do and how open I am, particularly on social media, I'll have people reach out to me. And I recently was talking to someone who had, was who had recently left a very stressful work environment, you know, not at all related to Foley and Lardner. I've actually never met this person before in my life. But, you know, I seemed like somebody that she could chat with and I was happy to talk to her, but um, dealing with like some pretty difficult discrimination. And one thing, because there were some other things happening where the employer wanted to sort of follow up with her and she didn't work there anymore and it was getting a little messy. But what I pointed out to her, I was like, you've been through a really difficult time and you're you're not okay yet. Yep. I know you're three or four months out of the environment. You're not okay yet. It's totally fine that you're not okay, but you don't have to reopen that with them if you don't want to. And so, you know, for you, fortunately, I think you've done a lot of work and probably had a lot of healing. I'm certain it's not something I did do that a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sure you did. And so I don't say that to reflect on where you are personally, but once again, for people who are dealing with difficult things, I do think there's a great deal of, of compassion out there. But that doesn't mean you're always ready to share, even if there is. So yeah. But that, then what? Did you make it to those the island that you started visualizing? <laughs> I did. I did. Well, I did want to say that that I do think that the firm did handle it very well, you know, and that, and that everything ended on good terms. And and then I think that the firm did 
did, did their job very well. So I have nothing negative to say about the, about the firm. But yeah, so one of the islands that I had visited before in Thailand is called Koh Mak, and it is a small island in the Gulf of Thailand closer to Cambodia, which is not where most people go in Thailand. They go further south. And that was the island, you know, kind of my happy place. And so that was the first place, you know, that was the first place that I that I went. I hadn't been there in 10 years. So it'd been, it'd been 10 years since my last travel experience. So most people think, you know, most people were like, didn't you just do this? Didn't you just take, I was like, no, it's been a, a decade. decade. Yeah, it's been a decade. And now I'm taking some time to travel again. Well, you set the stage a little bit because I remember when we first met, it was like, hi, Jessica, you're a lateral associate. Like, tell me all about yourself. And you mentioned that you, I mean, you'd really planned and like researched what you could do to be able to travel for a while. And so it wasn't as if you sort of on a whim just bought bought a ticket to the small island, but you were like, I'm ready to take a bit of a break. I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but but elaborate. Well, I, you know, originally it was going to be nine months and I had everything pretty structured as to, you know, doing a lot of research. And I think it took maybe four to six weeks, I'm not sure how long that I was into it, that I realized that I was treating my traveling the same way that I had been living my life as an an associate, which was very diligent, make sure that you are completing everything and make sure, you know, that I tick and tie and that I've checked the reviews for this and I'm only going to the best of this as opposed to just living in the moment and experiencing that. So I had to take a moment to reset. I actually came back home and, uh, you know, like for example, you know, the things that I packed, all of it was functional. Everything would be able to be used in this situation. So I came back home. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to bring some of my favorite dresses. You know, that's what's going to make me happy. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be all function. And I'm going to let, you know, kind of improvise a little bit more. And so, you know, slowly it was just kind of, you know, I think that I, over five years, kind of built up a lot of different shields and, you know, pers- you, know you try to figure out who am I going to be at work and what does this feel like? And so kind of just taking and peeling that all away. The armor. You're yeah. removing armor. Yep. And like, what interests me? What am I excited about? What are some of my passions? And, you know, going with what your intuition says and what your heart says, as opposed to what your mind is telling you to do. I'm just nodding profusely as you say that. We don't have time. It's a different podcast, but I do think in general, attorney- You're moonlighting personal development. (laughs) Back to my life coach talk, but lawyers tend to be very cerebral, very in their head. I- and was, was and maybe am to a large extent still that way. And I actually think there's a fair amount of work that has to happen for anyone, but I think particularly attorneys to get more heart-centered, intuition-centered, to realize there is that little voice kind of saying who you really are, what you really like, and maybe sometimes you silence it. And maybe it's fine in that moment, but maybe you need to listen to that voice a little bit more. But I'm hearing you giving that little voice more of a chance to break through as you're um, planning for or, or, or traveling. But tell me a little bit more. So it was it was longer than nine months. So it ended up being 18 months or so. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I didn't throw away the plan, but I just ended up saying, you know, I think I was, uh, it didn't need to make sense. And so I know that at one point, I, you know, I was in um, New Zealand and I was going to go to Australia the following month. 
So right next to each other. But I wanted to go home. So I thought I'm going home. You know, I'm going home and I'm doing this costume change and I'm going to reset and I'm going and that's okay. You know, I had the flexibility, I had the flexibility to do that. And one of the things that was important to me was doing, uh, you know, I did a series of Tony Robbins events. Yeah. So I did is uh, one of I did one of his events in Australia. It's called Date with Destiny, which was a six day event, and then I did a life mastery course in Fiji. Uh, so since I was over on that part of the world, and a lot of that is you know getting more heart centered and seeing what your passions and and just kind of focusing on on yourself in a different different way than I'd been used to for a while. That is awesome. Back to what I was saying, we have some similar interests. And I, I, I may call them personal development. I may call them human performance. But Tony Robbins is definitely in the mix of, of all of that. And I do have to get you to name just a few other places you visited. Because, Jessica, what I'm trying to recreate, which I won't be able to do, is when we first spoke, somehow we got on the topic of, of travel. And all I know is I was like, when I'm able to travel... And this was before COVID, I think. So I didn't know the world was going to shut down the way it did. But I was like, this is the person I need to call. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just trying to credential you and your travel kind of (laughs) like, yeah, your travel credentials here. Well, I think that, you know, that stint was 13 countries. But yeah, I drove New Zealand for six weeks. And so I know the North and the South Island pretty well. But uh, Australia, Kenya, Croatia, Vietnam, Fiji, Thailand, uh, went to Norway, Mexico, you know, Sayulita. So it was kind of all over the place. That is, and favorite place, if you had to choose? During that time of traveling? Sure, sure during that time. Because now, you know, I have a new favorite place. <laughs> I know. I, was we'll like, I have there. a new favorite place. Uh, during and, that time, and then we'll get to the new place. Um, you know, maybe doing the Masai Mara in Kenya. Um, I got to see the Great Migration and even drive a four-wheel drive car through the Great Migration, That's which so was, yeah, with a Kenyan warrior. And like I said, it was, <laughs> it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be a, a group tour, but it ended up just being me and him. And he's like, do you want to drive? I was like, I don't even know how to drive stick shit, but I'm doing this. Yes, I want to drive. <laughs> we'll figure it out right We're going to just stick in this gear. <laughs> That's amazing. And like I said, it's taking everything in me to like, not just turn it into like, just because travel guide podcast, but we will, but you mentioned at some point so after 18 months or so, it was time to come back to the States. Yeah. So I had this idea. I wanted to start a business, which was going to be something like a late night nails. And so it was really to cater to who I was as an associate those five years where I just felt like I didn't have any time, but I had money. But, you know, getting your hair done, getting your nails done, getting your oil changed, all these things take so much time. And for the most part, you're getting off of work. If it's later than 6 p.m., a lot of these things are going to be closed and you just don't have time to do them. So I had this idea where, you know, there was a one-stop place where you could go that, you know, had a mobile car wash. And so while you're getting your nails done and someone's doing your hair at the same time, you know, you could even add on a massage or something. You know, you see you have three different people working on you, your car is being serviced so that you could do stack all of these services. And I just, you know, really, it was meant for me, right? You know, I'm like, what business would I have wanted? But the more that I looked into, you know, and that was kind of fun going through the whole business plan and talking to salon owners. But the more that I looked into that and kind of started to evaluate the economic feasibility and what that was really going to mean to me, it was going to take so long for me to get back to 
you know, the salary of, of a lawyer. And, you know, even though I was pretty positive, you know, when I left my last firm, I was like, I'm never going to go back into the law. You know, I think I'm pretty sure I said that, even though I, I kept all my CLEs up. So I must have still, you know, like, but just in case I'm going to keep yeah. in good standing and do all of this. But, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, my ideas about the law and my practice were kind of tied in with, you know, different emotions and feelings yeah, that I'd had before. Absolutely. And so, you know, I decided to give it another another go and started working with a recruiter. And uh, I'm so glad that I did. So, so glad that I did. And we're so glad that you did. So then you joined Foley, which gets us up to, as you said, December 2019. Yes. And you already, you gave a summary when we first started of your practice, but now take me back to that summary. So once again, remi- remind me and the listeners, so what is your day-to-day practice at Foley right now? Oh gosh, I mean, there is no typical day-to-day. So I mean, that's been, that is one thing that has uh, been very different, you know, from my last firm where I think that, you know, we worked for, uh, the last firm, I worked for maybe three clients for the most part. I mean, and there would be other deals, but you, I pretty much knew what I was going to be doing. And here... I'm working on financing transactions for the most part. I thought that they were going to be mostly oil and gas transactions because I'm an energy finance associate, but I've worked on a lot of real estate transactions and almost anything that comes to a contract. I mean, people have sent me all sorts of different contracts. And if it's a contract and something that needs to be drafted or corporate resolutions or different things on the corporate side, then that's something that that I can do. Just anything on the contract. contract Well, let's talk a little bit about financing. Occasionally, I use my guests to teach a little bit about what a practice group is. Occasionally, I forget to ask my guests about their practice at all. Didn't do that today. But um, just to be really clear for someone who's not familiar with you know, the, the corporate side or transactional side of the law, when you say financing, it means someone's bought something and needs money. Am I getting that right? If you have to explain exactly what's going on and the work you're doing? Well, you, yeah. So somebody is getting a loan for something. So usually it's before they buy something. So it's if they're they're going to be that would make buying. sense. By the, way. Right. <laughs> the first you get the financing, then you do the buying. Then you do the buying. Yes. <laughs> but it might be a piece of real estate. It might be developing a piece of real estate that's already owned. It might be a refinancing. So using a different bank because they're going to get more favorable terms. But it's basically whenever there is a loan involved. And there is, you know, the main document is a credit agreement, which I almost kind of like into, you know, like those terms and conditions that are 100 pages and nobody really wants to read. I'm like, yep, that is the main document. And then you have all these other ancillary documents that you're drafting that basically help you know, secure whatever the security is. So whether that's a mortgage or deed of trust and, and all of the other little ancillary documents that go along with that as well. And my understanding is that uh, transactional or finance attorneys, particularly associates, you do a really good job at one, knowing how to change the documents to address whatever the nature of, you know, the item is that, or whatever it is that's being purchased. I won't say item because that's not correct. (laughs) But also, I've also heard a lot about just it being really important to be organized because there are so many different pieces and even though the credit agreement may be the main thing, there's a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Those like lots of other ancillary documents. <laughs> yes. And once again, that's something that I actually, I take it back when I was a summer associate a long time ago, a finance lawyer explained to me her practice in about, she took 20 minutes and at the end, my brain was like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know what you just said. So, but for whatever reason, I now, I get it more. I've, I've had more exposure to the, to the industry. 
But also I want to ask you about that experience of joining Foley, because like I've said repeatedly, you join the world changes. I know that you work with a number of different people across Foley's many offices, but if you could just, I don't know, say a few words about joining the firm and what it was like. Well, I'm very lucky with the people that I work with. So Felisa Sanchez is my mentor and probably, you know, the the number one person that I talk to. And she and I kind of have some similar interests. She, I feel like she's very patient with me and patient with everyone. It's just kind of what her style is. And and when I started, I mean, things were busy. So I, you know, I remember it was okay. Well, you're done with training at 4 p.m. Great, here's your assignment. <laughs> day one, we need you to do this. And I was like, okay, you know, and part of me is like, all right, taking the rust off can, but it really was not, I mean, I'd say it is like riding a bike. I mean, I'd done it for 10,000 hours. So I still knew, you know, what, what I was doing. And then I found just how appreciative, I think, because the group was pretty busy. So how appreciative everyone was about me stepping in during the holidays and helping really helped motivate me to learn everything that I needed to learn to kind of get back up to speed. That is fantastic. And it's funny, I'm sitting here thinking, I want to acknowledge you also, Jessica, without going too much into like me just recording some weird performance review that I shouldn't even have because I don't work with you. <laughs> but but I've just, I've heard so many good things oh, from people that you work with. And it can be really hard being a lateral associate. Partly, you know, I'm reflecting my own experience back when I was a lateral associate. And that was, you know, well before anyone ever thought there'd be a pandemic. And so you you just sound like somebody who's done a tremendous job at really getting to know a lot of people and just being really, really helpful. One thing I will share, hopefully this is okay, but I did hear from someone that when you aren't available, you'll like help go find someone who is available. Like you've got to go that back to like having energy going that extra step. And it just sounds like it's been noticed. Yeah, you know, it's it's been really great to get the the feedback that I've received at the firm and that's definitely very encouraging. You know, I think the Houston office kind of kept me, you know, pretty busy those first couple of months and then and then I got linked in with, you know, a partner in Boston who then recommended me to other people and then once the pandemic happened, I started doing some non-billable work with PPP loans and different research related to that, which then kind of it increased my exposure as well. And so then when billable matters did come in, then I was getting those matters as well. And now it's like I've worked with people from all over the country, which is pretty amazing. (laughs) And this is a good segue to you sharing one of your other favorite places on the planet, because, and I, I still set this up a little bit, in addition to working with Foley, people all over the US, you did some of the time you were doing that from the other part of the globe. So if you wouldn't mind saying just a few words about, I guess, the the travel you've been able to do since joining the firm. Yeah, well, you know, it started as a, a family vacation where I was going to go with my parents and sisters to French Polynesia, so Tahiti and Bora Bora for a couple of weeks. And then as we were planning it, I thought, okay, wait, I'm working remotely. Why don't I just stay there for an extra couple of weeks and I'll work remotely from there? And then it turned into what's another few more weeks? So what's it? Because I I bought all of the equipment you know that I needed, so I have to have a second monitor. So I bought a portable second monitor and an external keyboard, and I had you know everything that I needed for a home office you know wherever I was. So I ended up staying out there for almost three months, and the schedule wasn't too crazy. I would, I mean I'd wake up at five in the morning, which was nine a.m. Central Time. 
And so, you know, be online at, you know, 9 a.m. And, uh, but then for the most part, then I was done by 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. And then I could log on for a couple of hours in the evening, but I would have the days to go and explore, go scuba diving, enjoy the beach. It was, I had boundless amounts of energy as I think about it. <laughs> when I was out there, I was so energized to make this work. And I'm just really lucky I got to have that that opportunity. And you had some fantastic pictures. It was fun to uh, do video conference calls with you and be like, that color blue behind you is beautiful. Oh my God. It's everyone's background screens, right? I mean, I, I finally, I'd, I'd been looking for it for a while, you know, in my travels, I really like islands. I was like, I want to find, you know, what, where are these pictures being taken? I'm like, oh, there it is. It's in French Polynesia. That's where they're being taken. And I will say, and, it, and it's interesting because I know a number of people who due to a variety of circum life circumstances were working remotely from somewhere else for some period of time. You know, for some people it was, we live in the city and we have two kids and we rented a house in Colorado. Do you know what I mean? Like everybody, I think a lot of people have their own unique story. Yours is certainly unique. So what's the favorite place, by the way? So my favorite place is French Polynesia. The, yeah, my is. favorite country is French yeah. Polynesia and probably the island of Moorea, which is a 30 minute boat ride from Tahiti. That's awesome. So everybody who's listening, write that down. Yeah. You know. Out of all the places, you know, 50 countries, all the places. I'm like, nope, yeah. this is this is and, the best. It's the number one. Well, and also, if anyone's curious, because we did talk about this too, and we don't need to go into detail, but there were like all these like strict COVID procedures and it was a place that was largely unaffected. Right. And so all of that was taken into consideration and all that too. I don't know in case anybody's curious, but yeah. Uh, okay. We need to, we will switch gears a little bit. I do want to talk a little bit about you recently becoming co-chair of our Hispanic Attorneys yes. Group. And also the fact that you're very active and I believe it's the Houston Hispanic Bar Association. So I don't know if there's, you know, a couple of, or anything you'd like to share about that or even reflect on, you know, life as a, as a Hispanic you know, big law firm attorney, but we, I had to bring that up just to get your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that has been a position that I'm very proud to have and to kind of bring a little bit more structure and energy. I think that in general, there has been a difficulty with Hispanics because we're coming from, you know, it's not a, a race, right? I mean, we're not coming, people come from different countries and have different cultures. And so getting kind of everyone at the same page, but at least at the firm, when we're able to connect with all of the different offices, I mean, we do care about promoting ourselves and getting to know each other much better and with helping with the recruiting process in order to increase diversity. And so so it's been, you know, we had a meeting yesterday and uh, our first meeting of 2021, and it's been exciting to see just how much energy and enthusiasm you know, people are bringing. It's a exciting time for, you know, as you know, as a DNI <laughs> representative, it's just an ex exciting time for, for these different types of initiatives. Yep. There's a lot more awareness and you know, I think in some ways, so obviously the fact that I'm director of DNI, I think is very clear in these podcasts, but my, the focus is to get the individual stories, but I do think it is important for underrepresented groups and large law firms for, for individuals, you know, to the extent that they value it, but most do to get to know other people who've had a similar experience. And it's not because that experience is somehow, you know, better than, or to the exclusion of others, but, you know, often in really large law firms, depending on the group we're focusing on, it's just not many. When you look around and you're in an office and you're like, you know, for, for me, for example, if you're the only black woman in your office, 
it's nice to be connected to others who've had a similar experience. And then to the extent you can help raise awareness around or help spearhead or help recruit. Yeah, or help mentor anything, you know, it, it absolutely makes a difference. It's all the better. And by the way, so the other thing though, in terms of your general reflections as we wind down, you've said this in the experience of Ladderlink, but just to really tease it out, because you do have a unique experience in that you were at another firm, you took a, a, well, a year and a half off and then came to Foley, which now has, you know, over a thousand lawyers. What has your experience of, of Foley been? And just like the, the Foley culture, has that been palpable for you in your time with the firm? Yeah. You know, one way that I describe it is I've never been to Milwaukee, uh, where our you know main office is, but I really feel like this is a Milwaukee-based firm, even though I don't really know what that means. And to me, what that means is, you know, this is not a, there's something in between, you know, what a Texas firm, firm is and then what a New York firm is. And so my Texas firm was very, they were very formal. I mean, very, very formal. You know, New York firms, I think, have their own stereotype of working people down to the bone. And when I came in, even for my interviews with Foley, I mean, people seem so laid back and comfortable, just, I mean, just comfortable and self-assured in a way that they didn't need to, like, I feel like sometimes the Texas firms, like they got to prove themselves and they're going that extra mile to prove who they are with how they're dressing or how they're acting. And that was what I found so refreshing during the interview process. I was like, oh, wow, people just seem so laid back and not in, you know, yeah, yeah, not in like, like a bad right, but I was like, like oh, this seems yeah. like a Mil- I don't know what Milwaukee's like, but maybe this is kind of a you know, this is a Milwaukee-based firm. <laughs> the Midwestern ethos, yeah. which as someone who was raised in the Milwaukee area, you know, I can I can understand and relate to. And also a theme that's come up on this show whenever I've had partners on is most of them have stressed the things they do outside of work as being very important. And so it's not a it's not a firm where, or should I say, it's a firm where I said, said instead of having it be the opposite, but it's a firm where if you have outside passions, interests, engagements, family, whatever it may be, you can tell your colleagues about that and know that they're not somehow assuming that, oh, that means you're not really doing your work. And I don't know that that's always the case. They're not very reasonable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like reasonable and genuine and nice and sincere. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> and that goes a long way, a long way. Yeah, and it's the stuff that we're, that as Foley, and I think most organizations are like, those are, those are laudable characteristics. Right, those yeah. are things everyone should want. But, but unfortunately, sometimes dynamics in the workplace don't give you that vibe. And also now it's interesting to ask about because we're through our computers most of the time. We're not so much walking down the hall and the fact that, that culture is still palpable, I think says a lot, which is awesome. But as we have, you know, wind down the, you know, the last couple of things I wanted to ask you is one, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to raise? And then what advice do you have for somebody contemplating or navigating a legal career? Oh, let's see. So what advice I would have, you know, I think something that we talked about is, you know, both of our passion for personal growth and personal development. I think that the legal career is a stressful career. And there's a lot of, you know, you can read about depression and lawyers or alcoholism and lawyers. I mean, there are a lot of different vices that lawyers will use in order to deal with their stress. So I think that anything that you can do to invest in your own personal growth and personal development, especially so that you can cope with stress, I think is is going to be valuable whether you pursue a career in the legal field or in any other field. 
That is fantastic advice. And final, final question. If someone wants to reach out, comments, questions, can they feel free to find you oh, on Foley's website on yes. your email? Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.